Hello and welcome to the Alatea Foundation podcast. I'm Stephen Cole. Today we're joined by Dr. Laura A. Lambert. Dr. Lambert is a faculty member at the School of Economics, Administration and Public Policy at Doha Institute for Graduate Studies, where he oversees courses on energy policy and sustainability. Previously, he was a lecturer at the Paris Institute of Political Studies, also known as Sciences Po. It's a public research university that holds the status of Grand École. He's also been a senior policy analyst at the Social and Economic Survey Research Institute and a senior administrator of the Qatar Humanitarian Innovation Lab Initiative at Qatar University. So a very warm welcome to you, Dr. Lambert. Thank you, Steve. I'm delighted to be here with you. Well, to start with, can you tell us a little more about the role of the School of Economics, Administration and Public Policy at the Institute and where it sits within Qatar's educational establishment? Thanks. Very good question. So the Doha Institute for Graduate Studies has very specific function. It's, as the name indicates, only focusing on postgraduate studies, so it provides master's degrees and PhDs in a number of disciplines which were not developed enough in the state of Qatar in the social sciences, including environmental social sciences. We can speak about that later on. And what it does is that it enables a lot of people in the region, because most of our students are from the region. So it enables Qataris and students from the region to go at a higher level of research and investigation and generally to then enter into the field of academic research, higher education. So this is one of the key goals. And the second one is the very important capacity building of local capacities in Qatar in very specific niches. So we have, for instance, an executive master's degree in diplomatic studies and international cooperation for the diplomats. Mm -hmm. We have some executive master's degrees in other fields that cater the needs of very specific niches. And the idea really is that the Doha Institute for Graduate Studies will provide very high quality in very specific niches. All right, well, that's very clear. Um, after a great deal of fanfare, as you know, and an extra day of negotiations, the 28th Conference of the Parties, which we know as COP28, organised yep. by the UN, concluded in December. As expected, the final statement once again emphasised the transition away from fossil fuels. Now you've had a few months to consider the outcomes. What are your thoughts, Dr Lambert, on what happened there on the conference? Was it a success, a failure? or did it end in much the way it had been expected? Well, you know, the answer would depend very much on who you ask the question. <laughs> to me, it was more of a success than a disappointment, which is not often the case, by the way, with these big COPs, these big UN meetings, annual meetings of the climate negotiations. Why am I more happy than disappointed? Well. First, there was a, a lot of very negative press ahead of the event, especially in the few weeks before the event. And um, it, it seemed to be poorly starting. But yes. the most important, the most important to me is that the main goal, the main task of this COP, delivering the global stock take, was delivered. And that, that's what is really important. 
Um, we need to remember that some of these COPs sometimes go in total failure. I mean, in 2009, just to give an example, there was the big Copenhagen summit with heads of states. Um, Obama was there, Sarkozy, Merkel, uh, Gordon Brown. And eventually it didn't deliver any major agreement. So this That's was right. an opinion. Yeah, But no, I remember. Th this time we had uh, more negative press to start with, but eventually the big agreement that needed to happen, the global stock take again, was delivered. And this is something to be happy about it. And then we can go and further discuss it. There are a few things which are interesting to consider in it. Well, um, I found the phrase transitioning away from fossil fuels, unquote, as pretty vague. Does that, does that vagueness ultimately matter? Yes, I would say it's, you know, vague on purpose. You know, this is what in the field of climate negotiations and in some other fields of negotiations, we we use this we call creative ambiguity. This is this idea that if we go too much into too precise, too early, and especially when there are all these government representatives and high stakes and all the media are there, then it can block. And then we may not have any agreement at all. So what has come as really experience, and I've been following the negotiations going there very often, um, almost every year. Well, what I have found is that what works the best is that we have these terms that most people will understand, which are not too precise, so that, you know, the devil in the detail doesn't derail the whole process, but which can be basis for then further work. Because between these two, um, between two annual meetings, which generally happen at the end of the year, then we have these sub-negotiations, if you want, or these other tracks, which will build further. But for these to happen, we need to have these two end-of-the-year, I mean, these end-of-the-year negotiations that move forward, that provide, you know, material for then further work by all these technocrats that will do a lot of nitty-gritty work so that <laughs> then there is precision of these broad terms. Yes. I, I love your phrase, strategic ambiguity, um, which is a, a, a lovely way of putting it. COP28 began with the announcement it had mobilized over $85 billion in funding for climate action and uh, also reaching an historic agreement on loss and damage and making advancements to the GGA, the Global Goal on Adaptation. Would you say that was a substantive achievement of, of COP28 or, or is it again um vague a, a vague promise well here we need to unpack two things steve there is on the one hand the loss and damage which is something i wouldn't say new but more recent and that is definitely something moving ahead by at least by climate negotiations within the un system it's moving relatively fast and again it's by standards of the un climate negotiations And we have, on the other hand, the matter of climate finance, which is something really old. And by the way, for the funny thing, I teach climate negotiations to my students. And yesterday evening, I was telling them about these 85 billion US dollar. And actually, this figure is 
uh, failure. Why? Because it was promised again, by the way, in Copenhagen in 2009 by the heads of states who were arriving at the last hours of the meeting in Copenhagen, Denmark, and they had no agreement and they decided that, okay, to save face, we need to come up with something. And they decided, these heads of states, to make a big promise to the global south. So we're talking about, again, the leaders of a bunch of Western governments who promised $100 billion per year of climate finance by 2020. You know, this was in 2009. They wouldn't be in office 10 years after. So, of course, they could promise that. But came yeah. 2020, there never was the $100 billion. And even now, we are way below $100 billion per year. And we are, as you've said, around $85, $86 billion per year. And what is interesting is that, yes, it is there, but most of it, and that's interesting, and that's where we need a lot of critical thinking, most of it are loans. Some are grants, yes, but they used to be under other names in bilateral or multilateral aid, and they've just been called climate finance, although they already existed under another name. So basically, there is a lot to, you know, unpack again and be critical about because not everything is real climate finance. Yeah. And most importantly, we're not at the level we expected, and very importantly, some of it is not as good as it may seem. So this is not such a great news. However, on the loss and damage thing you mentioned, Steve, this is a good news because loss and damage is something that is more recent and has been moving ahead. And what is important is that it reflects a paradigmatic shift. You know, back in the days, climate negotiations and climate assistance was just about either mitigation, we decrease the pollution and risks, or adaptation. In this case, loss and damage means these two things are important for sure, but there is another thing. The climate crisis is here. It's going to affect a lot of countries, and if we don't have the funds to help them, there will be collapses of societies. Right. You can imagine. <laughs> yes, please. Yeah, I, I, that's that's right. I mean, following the money is is quite a good way of following the campaign uh, to fight yeah. climate change. But uh, if you think you mentioned the global stock take, do you think enough progress has been made with regards to net zero, or are we beginning to take a step back? A very important question. Um, you know, a simple answer: has enough been made? No. Uh, everyone can agree that we're absolutely not close to net zero. We have, you know, projections, we have ambitions, we have targets. But so far, the ongoing trajectory of the global community is absolutely not on, you know, a trajectory compatible with the net zero, which have been declared by many countries. And when I say many countries, it's not just Western countries, which have declared that by 2050 or 2040, they could be net zero. It's also East Asian countries. We're talking about um, Japan. We are talking about even China or India, which have targets of net zero, as well as Singapore and so on. So a lot of countries have these targets. But again, what is being done in the short to medium term is not yet compatible with that. 
a lot of work is being done, but not enough. So I'm, I cannot say I'm happy with what is ongoing for now. Yeah. Um, although widely considered to be a, the key part of the energy mix on route to net zero, um, gas produces a substantial amount of methane. So this is quite a detailed question. Has enough been done, do you think, to counter all the fears about methane emissions from gas, uh, especially based as you are in, in Doha and Qatar? What promises yes. have been made to reduce methane emissions? Methane is a very important gas to focus on. It's not the main gas or, you know, driving climate change, which is carbon dioxide. And, and, and But it remains a very important one. It's very potent. So it also contributes to the climate crisis. So we do have to focus on it. Authorities have understood that. A number of things have been launched around the world um, to limit torching, which is also an issue but also to detect, and that's very important, and monitor and measure methane leakages. Because what we've found in recent years is that gas fields could have significant um, gas leakages, which could keep on pushing rapid climate change. So this is a concern. Authorities around the world are trying to work on it to better understand the problem and to provide okay. um, policies and technical solutions but the road is, is is you know remains pretty long to to be to be there so it is a concern definitely okay well uh, i want to bring you back to ndc's uh, as we all know nationally determined contributions um yeah. can you give me your thoughts on ndc's from middle east countries uh, such as qatar and the uae will uh, those countries struggle to create and stay with NDCs, as quite obviously their wealth is built on the production of fossil fuels? Mm. That's a very good question, because on the one hand, we see very well that these countries, um, Qatar, the UAE, which, by the way, the two of them hosted uh, climate negotiations, are really trying to be players of the international communities and, and to contribute but at the same time, as you've said, they are constrained because their their main economic basis are is hydrocarbon. So it really is a concern. But what's happening is that they managed so far to develop a number of creative ways to adapt their economic basis, hydrocarbons, to uh, gradually decarbonize future. Carbon capture and storage, for instance, is something of interest to them. More importantly, is the use of um, offsetting, you know, uh, carbon emissions via reforestation projects, and especially mangroves, by the way, which are native species mm. of, of forest trees, which are really capable of, of sequestrating a lot of carbon in, in the soil. Yes. Will it be enough? Probably not, but hopefully building on this and also the transformations of their energy efficiency in their economies, but also of the rates of the of the prices of energy, etc. All of that will help them to move along the international community towards a more decarbonized future because the whole community needs it. I finish with this. I mean, the Gulf countries are the first to win by being energy smart because 
their economy is about energy and being able to master some of the niches of the future is strategic. But they would be the first also to lose if they don't adapt to climate change because with their low-lying coastal states, there is much at stake exactly. with climate change and sea level rise. Now, I, I, I'm going to apologize for this question because I want you to be brief, but it's a very big question as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> uh, that's the role of AI, artificial intelligence in climate action, because it's yeah. going to be technology, isn't it, that solves so many of our problems in the future uh, on climate action. Yes, but what is for now understood is that AI will be pervasive. So it will be in climate action, it will be in the energy industry uh, 4.0, it will be in most industries we think about. So AI will definitely be part of the solution. How exactly we're still starting to figure it out, to be very honest. But what we understand is that there are many applications that can help in the fight against climate change. What we hope is that the Gulf states will be quick enough so that they also produce AI solutions and are not just consumers of the AI solutions of the future so that they can diversify their economy and benefit from it to the greatest extent they can. Okay. Well, let's move right to the final statement of COP28 and it explicitly called out all fossil fuels. Um, was this an adequate final statement, or do you think it was too weak, uh, too weak in uh, too weak in the build-up to looking ahead to COP twenty nine? Yes. Well, on this, I have two hats, and to be honest, my environmentalist side, if I may say, says, well, it's too weak. But then there is my public policy professional hats, which says, well, <laughs> we couldn't have much better than this and we need to be realistic and move ahead you sure that isn't it... strategic ambiguity dr lambert yeah well you know exactly because we, we we need to have this capacity to get everyone on board because if we have 30 or 50 countries who break away and they follow no rule then it might be much worse you know so again we we need to come to a document which has the capacity to bring everyone together. And by the way, this is the role of these diplomatic documents. Then again, there are these nitty gritty detailed roadmaps, nitty gritty detailed rule books, and so on. All these other documentations, which generally is not spoken much about, but which is where the details are and all the complexity. But this is for when there are not the media, and this is for when, you know, People can really negotiate the hard things. For now, what we had was a big show in Dubai. It was successful. It delivered a diplomatic agreement. Let's understand it as it is, a diplomatic agreement. And then in the next phases, let's make sure that it is detailed enough so that we can move ahead and ambitious enough so that we can save our climate. Dr. Lambert, many thanks to you. That concludes our interview for today. On behalf of the Alatea Foundation, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us today and providing us all with your excellent insights into COP. The, the Foundation looks forward very much to continuing this conversation with you in the near future. Uh, for me now, Stephen Cole, uh, that's all. Uh, but please join us again for the next uh, Alatea podcast interview in the series, The Changing Future of Energy. And that's in the coming weeks. Thank you.